0: Welcome to The Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New
1: plan!
2: Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other.
0: We're The Reframers.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome. How's it going this week? Erin, Cassie, how are you guys doing today?
1: Oh, it's good. Thanks. Hello, everyone. Hi, guys.
2: Well, we're so glad you could join us. This week, we are talking about the filibuster. So I'm sure by now, everybody who cares about politics has heard about the filibuster or uh, heard talk about changing the filibuster. And we thought this would be a great time for us to jump in and, and give our two cents on the topic and also give you a little bit of historical background because it seems like there's a lot of confusion and people that have maybe some things to gain are Maybe not being entirely honest about what the filibuster is or why it exists. So, we're gonna jump in and give you the historical context of the filibuster this week, what the founders thought about it, as well as where it kind of stands today. And then, you know, Aaron and I will talk about it and give you our two cents. So, thanks for being here with us. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. So the first part, obviously, is what is the filibuster? You know, let's define it so we can all know what we're working with here going forward.
0: I have a definition of the filibuster from the U.S. Senate glossary, which if you didn't know, the U.S. Senate has a glossary online that you could go look for different terms. So this is how they define the filibuster. It's an informal term for any attempt to block or delay Senate action on a bill or other matter by debating it at length by offering numerous procedural motions or by any other delaying or obstructive actions. So we often think of the filibuster as being something where someone's standing up and speaking the whole time, that's not what a filibuster has to be. And it's also not how the filibuster in the modern day works. We don't require people to stand on the floor of the Senate and talk for 20 plus hours in order to delay the passage of a bill.
2: Yeah, that's that's the typical Mr. Smith goes to Washington image that we have in our head of the filibuster is the Jimmy Stewart movie where he's just this small town guy who goes and is elected and then he stands up there and talks for hours and hours and hours and, and he wins like that's that's the feel good version of the filibuster but it doesn't necessarily pan out to being that in practice.
1: That's definitely what I thought it was and all I thought it was and I was curious about how we were going to fill a whole episode so I guess I'm going to learn a lot today. <laughs> It's a lot of things about the filibuster. So many, so many, so many thoughts. It's a very Um, boring word. So I was not sure what to think about this, but I'm excited that y'all are excited. Let's do it. It's a super
0: exciting topic actually. And anyone who's feeling like Cassie, as I'm glad you mentioned that Cassie, this is something that has a really, really big impact on politics today and how we can pass um, laws. And so we are are gonna spend some more time kind of breaking down how it works so that we can discuss the practical implications of it. I also wanted to mention where the filibuster comes from. The houses of Congress per the constitution and article one are allowed to set rules for their proceedings and the filibuster came out of one of these rules that the senate set for itself um, and as reference the house of representatives also used to have a filibuster It was actually created semi by accident by aaron burr see hamilton for the aaron burr backstory he inadvertently created it by requiring people to take attendance except for that if you were present and you decided not to vote on a law, then you didn't have to be counted for quorum. And that matters because if there's not enough people, that's what quorum means, then you can actually prevent bills from being passed. So people could be on the floor of the Senate and just not say that they were there. And so they could prevent bills.
2: It sounds to me in in like layman's terms, because we've all been through school, where it's like if you have students that are showing up or you know in a classroom and the teacher's taking attendance and the students are just like, I'm not going to say anything and then the teacher ends up not teaching like that's kind of seems like what happened in terms of how we got to the filibuster in the origin story.
0: Yes, and again, this is in the House of Representatives so it's a little different and I want to tell this story because it's funny and it kind of tells us a little bit about how Congress used to be, at least in the House. In After the 1888 elections, there was a representative named Thomas uh, Brackett Reed, who decided to basically change this filibuster rule in the House by actually taking attendance. And so he required people to vote. So he would call on them and say, what's your vote, as opposed to just letting them not say anything. And this was happening when they were trying to pass a law. And when the representatives realized what he was doing, they started literally running for the exits, like trying to run out off of the floor of the, of the house so that they wouldn't be counted as being there. Apparently people are trying to like climb out windows and stuff. So we had wild congressional things happening back in the 18, the late 1800s. So do you ever think oh, all this is
1: boring think of
0: representatives are <laughs> running for the exit? So they won't be counted as part of quorum to prevent laws from being passed
2: you know, that's that the that's, most
0: dramatic
1: thing I've ever heard.
2: <laughs> that's really awesome. And, and I love that if you go back and you look into history, because so much of our politics is so dull, and it's he said, and she said, and blah, blah, blah. It's so, but the United States Congress was lit back in the day. Like, <laughs> we took a tour of the Capitol, and there was like brawls on the floor, and <laughs> duels, and murders, and all this crazy stuff. So it's like, this is why history is fun because you're going through talking about the filibuster. And then all of a sudden you have a stampede of people trying to leave. That's just, that's really fun. I love that detail.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they like lock the exits and stuff to prevent people from leaving. Gosh. <laughs> and um, they realized after they got rid of, basically they got rid of the filibuster. This was the um, Republican party who did this back in the 1800s. The democratic party reinstituted this version of the filibuster two years later and then they hated it so much that they ended up getting rid of it altogether after that. And so the filibuster hasn't existed in the House of Representatives for 130 years.
2: And that's something that's important to note, too, is that whenever there's a new session of Congress that started, the majority party gets to make their rules for that session. Right. So there's there's some interpretation of how when each party is elected, they can change the rules if they have the votes to do so for that for that session of Congress. So that's something that is just important to kind of keep in mind as like a, a background that the rules are not ironclad, like they can be changed session to session.
0: To also continue to clarify how the filibuster now today in the Senate works is that what the filibuster actually does is it's the mechanism to stop debate from continuing. Kind of, like we mentioned before, we think of it as being, oh, you're filibustering by talking forever and ever and ever. That's not actually the filibuster. The filibuster is what you have to do to stop the person from talking. And in the Senate, currently, you need 60 votes to end debate. So that means that you have to have a super majority. The reason why this is such a big deal right now in our current moment is that the Senate right now is split 50 50 between Democrats and Republicans. Democrats can break that 50 50 tie by having the vice president vote on um, legislation that comes down to to 50-50 tie. The vice president, of course, is Vice President Harris, and so she votes for uh, the Democrats. So Democrats still have the majority power, but they definitely do not have a supermajority. And so when things do come to filibuster, they've thus far been unable to overcome filibuster uh, votes because they haven't been able to get enough Republicans over to vote for, with them on certain policies. Now this on, is really on, affecting Democrats right now, but it can also affect Republicans and has in the past.
2: And that vote would then be to kind of like how you can um, veto a bill and then you can override a veto. The votes in the Senate to end the filibuster then to say, we have enough senators, 60 plus, that say this stalling tactic is going to end and we're gonna continue debate.
0: You would end debate. The filibuster ends the debate, so you don't continue debate. It ends the debate, and then you can send the bill to a vote.
2: Send the bill to vote. Okay, thank you. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. So one of, the, one of the things that I found to add on is the, because the 60 number is important, right? Sometimes some things are, you just need a simple majority, meaning 51 votes, and some things you need a supermajority, which is the two-thirds majority. This is just from, basically from the Constitution saying that the the framers limited the things that required a supermajority to only five things. One of those being treaties, the other being impeachment, the third being veto overrides, the fourth is a constitutional amendment, and then the fifth is expulsion of members. So they kind of reserved that supermajority standard for only a very limited number of things. There's a great quote that you'll find if you do any digging into the filibuster from James Madison of Federalist 58 that says requiring more than a majority would mean that the fundamental principles of free government would be reversed. It would no longer be the majority that would rule. The power would be transferred to the minority. So that's giving us the standard or the the context of at least a framer of the Constitution, James Madison, of what he thought of not so much the filibuster because the filibuster didn't exist as we know it today then, but of what the filibuster uh, embodies which is stalling, basically, and preventing stuff to come to a vote.
0: Definitely. And Alexander Hamilton also has similar quotes in Federalist 22. He shared this view of Madison, that supermajority gives this power basically to the minority Um, Mm -hmm. and, and really does prevent majority rule, at least in the way that the founders envisioned it this isn't something that is in the constitution, right? Like this is a rule that the Senate has created for itself. It was established in 1917 and it originally required 67 senators to vote to cut off debate. And then that was changed in 1975 to only require 60 votes.
2: And there's some interesting information out there that, you know, it's almost like um, a population curve where you see the rule is just kind of codified in 1917. And then it says in the fifty years after the the rule changed in 1917, filibusters averaged less than one a year. In contrast, in 2005 to 2006, there was an average of 34 cloture motions filed to end filibusters each year. And in 2007 2008, there were 139 cloture motions filed. That's averaged out to be about 70 a year. So what that amounts to is back in 1917, it wasn't a problem. You have one average one a year of these of these tactics being used. And today it's happening 70 times per year. And it's probably even more so than that now, because this number was from 07, 08.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's a good thing to mention as well, is the reason that this has become such a big conversation in the modern political sphere is because of this increase of um, filibusters that really increased under Obama specifically, started under George W. Bush, and then kind of shot up under Obama. And there's been interesting developments very recently in how the filibuster can be used in Congress. In 2013, the Democrats changed the rule about filibusters when it came to confirming appointments of presidential executive appointments, basically. So the reason that they decided to do this uh, that they stated at the time is that the Senate Republicans had blocked so many of President Obama's executive nominees, both to his cabinet and also to circuit courts. And the they wanted to be able to approve these nominees based on a simple majority and not have to have a supermajority to be able to do that. So the Senate Democrats changed the filibuster rule and they made it so that you cannot filibuster for uh these. Or these executive appointments, except they didn't extend this all the way to U.S. Supreme Court nominees. For a Supreme Court nominee, you could still filibuster it. You would still need sixty votes. The Republicans in 2017 removed that requirement for the filibuster. So now you only need a simple majority to for Congress to approve presidential appointments. And uh, circuit court judges; those are federal judges, and also Supreme Court judges.
2: And that's a big deal, right, Aaron? Because effectively, what you could do as as Senate, as one of the the arms of the the legislative branches, kind of in effect, block the executive branch from functioning. If you're blocking presidential nominations or appointments to cabinet positions or heading departments or whatnot, that effectively means that those departments are running without a head for however long the blockage goes on that's a a huge potential to really bog down an agenda you know the president's elected to carry out an agenda whether the people like it or not and so that's a stoppage of the president being able to carry out that duty
0: yes and if you've heard of merrick garland this is this was a huge deal he was nominated to the supreme court to be supreme court justice by president obama and his nomination, even at the hearings for his nomination, were blocked by Senate Republicans using this filibuster method because they would need a supermajority to even get to the hearings. And I mean, people were infuriated by this. And it outraged. really kind of <laughs> yeah, like outraged, uh, I, th- you know, I think justifiably, but like it really threw this into sharp relief of like what the, the huge effects of this because of that. Obama didn't get to put um, another Supreme Court justice uh, on the Supreme Court. And then when Trump came two years later, he, he appointed three Supreme Court justices, all based on a majority vote. And so like, there's very real implications for the Supreme Court, but also just for the passage of legislation. And so now, currently, what we have is the only thing that filibuster still applies to is passages of legislation doesn't apply in any other context anymore, even though it used to be broader.
2: I think that's probably a good thing.
0: Okay. So uh, that's a, that's a good transition. So where, (laughs) Uh, where do you fall then on the filibuster, I guess?
2: Here's going into then what's, what's our motivation for talking about this this week for me in doing the research, you know, I, I heard a lot of just kind of the, the political talking points because it changes, right? Whoever, owns a majority in the Senate at the time, is wanting to make the rules, bend the rules in their favor. Right now, the Republican consensus is filibuster can't go away. We need to preserve the filibuster. And it seems like the Democratic viewpoint is that it might be time to get rid of the filibuster. In doing research for this week's episode, I come down to, it's basically just a political tool. It's not at all like a principled something that people are held to with principles and and consistent standards. There's so many flip flopping that depending on whoever's in charge comes down, their stance changes depending on who has control of the Senate. So for me, that's just kind of icky. It feels gross to me. I don't like that. In terms of the actual filibuster itself, in terms of the things that it prevents or gains, I don't know. I'm I'm a bit iffy on it. Honestly, I, I think that I'm in favor of the rule changes that have been made recently to stop the filibuster from applying to nominations and justices and things like that. I think we could probably even do some more rule changes, honestly, because there's just, there's so much like hostaging and posturing that can happen with the filibuster that it just feels gross to me. It just feels gross.
0: That's funny. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I would agree. I think what's interesting about the filibuster is it really affects the majority party, right? This is a tool against whoever is in the majority. And the big argument for the filibuster is that it protects the minority and that it allows for more debate. So, I mean, the theory is basically, you know, you you require more people to vote on these things. That means that you have to compromise more. You have to Mm -hmm. be able to reach across the aisle to get more votes which means we'll have better legislation because we'll be bipartisan. I mean, like that's the general idea, which actually does sound great in theory, you know, on like an if ideological it, level. If it worked. <laughs> right, like that would work. But the thing is like the parties are too, we're too partisan basically at this point yeah. to, to work with each other. And I think that for me, it, it sort of boils down to that, is do you believe that the parties can actually get to the supermajority on any kind of big legislation I think a lot of people, myself included, think that like, no, at this point, that's that's not where we're at. And it really has just been used as this obstructionist method to make sure that legislation doesn't get passed.
1: Well, that is a super majority?
0: Super majority is the 60 votes, two thirds. So you need the two thirds to get over it. That that's a super majority. Thank you.
2: The part that feels icky to me is that it is a little bit of like political hostaging that happens where. On the one hand, I think that protecting the, the rights of a minority are important, right? It's we live in a country where everybody's rights should be protected. And but this isn't so much a, a rights issue as it is, you know, enacting legislation. But the, the people have already had their chance to to voice their opinion on that issue, whatever the issue is, right? They elected that senator from that state to represent them for that term. And you can call on your senators, you can urge them to vote, you know, yes or no on certain legislation, like there are there are avenues in which to to go about the people influencing, you know, Senate votes and things like that. It's hard to know how much public opinion sways things because oftentimes it feels like once a politician is elected, especially a senator who serves for like six years right like that's a, a big leash to give people to do what they want to do while they're in office and. But the party is what the party is. And so I don't like when Republicans say you know it's time to change the filibuster rules when they're benefiting from changing the rules and I don't like when Democrats say it when they would benefit from changing the rules. It just feels icky And the other thing I don't like is that when doing research I found that this is from democracyinitiative.org page that says in other cases senators may hold up a bill or nomination, so not anymore but a bill in order to extort a ransom And then they list some examples of Senator Ben Nelson insisting on a special Medicaid deal for his state as his price for allowing an up or down vote on the healthcare reform. And then Senator Richard Shelby placed a hold on more than 70 nominees to demand approval of a $35 billion plane to be built in his state by corporations that gave that had given handsomely to his campaign. So I'm being neutral here. That's one a Democrat and one Republican that, you know, examples that I use, but Like that's not the purpose of the, that should, in my opinion, that should not be the purpose of the filibuster. It should be limited to the particular issue at hand rather than using it as political extortion to get, you know, more benefits for your district or for your state. That's, that's where I have a big issue with it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. It it really incentivizes this almost like dirty politics. Like those things are legal. It's not like those, it's not like those people are breaking the law or anything, but this isn't like good faith negotiating, right? Like when people argue that the filibuster, it supports this idea of, you know, being more bipartisan, like that just does not play out. In fact, you know, that's not how it works. And there's also this argument that, you know, what it really does is just stop controversial, almost like bulldozing type legislation, But there's legislation that's been filibustered that had broad public support that uh, didn't get passed. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about gun control and some of the gun control legislation after Sandy Hook that was supported. It was a bipartisan bill. And that bill um, also had a lot of support in the general population that got filibustered and, you know, it died on the Senate floor. And then another one, um, this was also under Obama's dreamers legislation, which was also had broad public support that also got filibustered and, um, and died on the Senate floor. So, you know, it just is sort of a rosy idea that I would love to be able to embrace that. I just, it doesn't work in practice. It's sort of that absolute power corrupts, Mm absolutely kind of idea. It's just, we don't deserve the filibuster really at the end of the day. We, we, We can't use it right.
2: I would almost think that if they change the rules, right? Like we we obviously can change the rules. We've done it before, but if you change the rules to make it so the filibuster, like the conditions of which you're filibustering have to be related specifically to the scope of the bill that's being debated. Like, I don't even know if that's possible to do, but that seems like that would be at least a somewhat plausible way to rein in some of the misuse of the the rule or of the tool rather. Also, I think generally what could be done is making bills less complicated, because that's a big thing that happens, whereas you'll get a lot of what they call it pork, which doesn't make any sense. But I'm sure there's an origin for it somewhere of things that you're saying, okay, if we're going to pass the Obamacare Act, but then they're going to throw in all this other stuff, too. It's like, let's, let's make bills actually only contain what they're supposed to contain and not have all these other things like Uh, We're also going to throw in a million dollars research into glow-in-the-dark shrimp or, you know, whatever dumb stuff people want to research. Not that that's dumb necessarily, but just that let's keep the bills focused. Let's keep the filibuster focused on the issue at hand and not be using it as this political extortion.
0: Yeah, and there's been talk, right, about how we could modify the filibuster as opposed to just getting rid of it. And One of the ways would be to cap the topic and cap the amount of time or uh, decrease the number of votes needed to overcome a filibuster. So it's not quite a two-thirds majority. It could be maybe 53 votes or something, because convincing two more people to vote or three more people to vote with you is a lot easier than convincing 10 more people to vote with you. But even like even those changes, to me, it's like a half measure. You know, like why? it Let the majority party that has been voted in by the population pass their agenda and do what they said they're going to do. And if the country doesn't like it, then they have the opportunity to vote in the next election and, and flip it if they want. And I think that something else that getting rid of the filibuster could do really could hold political parties and representatives to their campaign promises. I mean, right now the filibuster makes it very easy for our representatives or our senators to say, Well, I was going to do it, but the other party prevented me from doing it, which isn't like, that's actually true, but it also totally lets them off the hook from being able to do things that they say they're going to do.
2: Yeah. And on the flip side of it, right. You can have people that get up there and they initiate a filibuster and they're talking for a long time. It's just good theater, right? Because now you're you're attracting all the cameras on you. The headlines are when you go to sleep that night, oh, so-and-so has been up filibustering for six hours. That's incredible. And then you wake up the next morning and he's still up there talking, well, imagine that it's 18 hours now. And you're like, so that scoring you a ton of points probably back home with your constituents, right? To say, I'm fighting for you. I filibustered for, you know, check the stopwatch however long, and, and I'm really fighting for you. And that's a very public show of something rather than I'm voting for you. Mm -hmm. rather than I'm fighting for you. Like, how about let's, I'm voting for you. Here's my voting record. And maybe that's not as flashy, but I don't know, it's more democratic.
0: I I have to mention when we're talking about the filibuster, just the ways that it's been used to just kill progressive legislation, particularly with regard to minority populations. So for instance, the most famous filibuster in history is probably the one of Senator Strong Thurman of South Carolina, used a filibuster to stop civil rights legislation in 1957. He spoke on the floor of the Senate for, it was like 23 hours or something. It's like one of the longest filibusters in history.
2: 24 hours and 18 minutes. Sorry, say it again. 24 hours and 18 minutes against the Civil Rights Act of 1957.
0: Yeah. And then he and a few other senators did it again in 1964 um, against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Which did eventually pass, but it was delayed for months because of this filibustering. And I mean, for me now, what I think of is HR one and the, which is the legislation about voting rights, um, which and it has some other provisions as well. Which is current legislation the Democratic Party has proposed and would like to pass, and that currently can't pass because of filibustering in the Senate. And this is probably a good time to talk about like what would actually have to change and why this is a conversation right now. So it's a conversation again right now because of this situation we're in, we're split 50-50. In order for the Senate to be able to change the rules though, they need a majority of their senators to agree to get rid of the filibuster. And so the Democratic Party right now has, there's like three, but really one big holdout on changing the senate filibuster rule and that is joe manchin mm-hmm. um he is now have like the entire spotlight of the nation on him because of this um and he's basically said that he doesn't want to change the filibuster because he think he believes in bipartisan legislation making um so he is continuing basically to hold on to this idea of well we have to have bar- bipartisan legislation and so i can't get rid of i can't, can't vote to get rid of the filibuster We'll see if he changes his opinion on that. I don't know if he will. There's some speculation that if Republicans keep basically refusing to work with Democrats on certain pieces of legislation, maybe he'll change his mind. But he seems pretty firm on it. So, I mean, from my perspective, it doesn't look to me like the filibuster is going to be gone, at least in the next two years. There's a lot of speculation that this is going to flip two years from now. And I could very easily see Republicans deciding to get rid of the filibuster then. Uh, in fact, I think this is probably more likely. This is exactly what McConnell did in 2000, well, 2013, when Democrats got rid of the filibuster for presidential nominees other than the Supreme Court. McConnell made all of these statements about how terrible it was and everything. And then in 2017... They immediately flipped, you know, and, and did, got rid of it for uh Supreme Court justices, which I mean, that's not like just about McConnell. I think Democrats could have would have done that, too. Um
2: Well, that's I and mean, that's the that's the thing that I have right now, because obviously Democrats hold the Senate. If you're counting VP Harris, right, it's the tiebreaker that there's a post on a story from Washington Post that says. According to a fixed review over the past year, no fewer than 45 democratic senators have called for changing or eliminating the legislative filibuster. Like I said earlier, no matter who's in power at the time, right, whoever has the majority, they're like, oh yeah, I think now would be a great time for us to get rid of that filibuster, right, just cram through our agenda. I don't blame you guys for for doing that because it's the smart tactical thing to do. But when then you lose power in the next election cycle and you start calling for the reverse, it just is like, I remember what you said like 10 minutes ago. I remember that you said, oh, no, this is a great thing or this is a terrible thing and this is a racist thing and it's a absolute you know cornerstone of our democracy. It's like, you guys are just posturing up there. Like it's not, you're using it to gain power when it's convenient for you at the moment.
0: Totally agreed. And um, actually related to this, I want to bring up an argument that Mitch McConnell, you know, my favorite person made uh, about this. This is a quote from him. He says, instead of building stable consensus, we'd be chaotically swapping party platforms. And this is another argument basically for keeping the filibuster saying, you know, if we get rid of it and we're not building this like bipartisan legislation, all we're doing is going to put through really extreme legislation on one side and really extreme legislation on the other side, and we'll just flip flop, and it will be very chaotic. That's, that's the argument. To me, this doesn't hold a ton of weight. I think that, yeah, maybe the legislation would be more extreme. I mean, clearly it would be right if Democrats could pass whatever they wanted without having to take Republican ideas, they're going to pass things, obviously, that Republicans don't like and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But then it's like that, that puts it on the voters to say, this is terrible, and we need to get rid of it, right? Or this is great, and we want to continue it. Or this is almost good, and you need to amend it. I think that even that would hopefully get more civic engagement, for one. And yeah, there might be a little bit of flip-flopping. But mm-hmm. to me, that's more okay than what we have now, where nothing is getting done at all.
2: Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a good point, Aaron. It's hard to say what would happen, right? Because it's just hard to predict what the reality would be like if things changed, but I do see that as a potential that could develop. I don't know if, if us as a citizenry, I don't know that I have that much faith in the nation as as a, a voting populace. It just, you know, it hurts me to say it, but that people would be more engaged and more involved in reading bills and stuff like that for us to have that pan out. It would be great. I agree. It would be nice, but I don't know that people are that proactive in terms of reading bills. I think they're more reactionary to say, oh, this is bad. And then that's where you would get that boomeranging back and forth, which maybe is a good thing. I I don't know. But yeah, the stalling on things right now is obviously not great. I know that there's the framers did develop the constitution to be a slow process. We didn't want thing, they didn't want things to be happening so quickly. They wanted to have a certain amount of built-in gridlock, but they didn't build this part in. You can't defend it on that, on that ground. So rule changes at least. Know, maybe getting rid of it altogether. I don't know.
0: We don't know exactly what it would look like today, but we didn't have this rule until 1917. I mean, right. We governed a lot of the country without it. so right. And it didn't seem to throw the country into ultimate chaos, at least then. So I, I don't know that it's even true to say we have no idea what would happen. Like it, we, we treat this as something that is just so part of our system, almost inherent mm-hmm. to how we govern. And that's just not true. I think it would probably be fine. And for the record, I don't expect people to read bills. Maybe we should expect people to read bills, but like, I didn't go read the entire ACA. Are you kidding me? That's the ACA being <laughs> the um, Affordable, Affordable Care Act, Act yeah. or locally known as uh, Obamacare. Yeah. But like, that's, that was like a 300 page bill, you know, like who's going to go read that other than like healthcare providers who have to go comply with it. It's right. obviously there's, and that I think did have to be somewhat complicated, right? You're dealing, you're overhauling an entire system of healthcare. Like, mm-hmm. It has to have a, it has to have a lot in it. I mean, even when we're looking at the COVID stimulus relief bill, that's something that is really complicated as well, but it has to be, partly because of how you have to administer it. And with the COVID relief, just I wanted to mention the, the way that that got passed to get around this whole filibuster process is through something called budget reconciliation which is probably something that everyone has heard of. Maybe you don't understand exactly what that means, but basically it's this system where for legislation that is purely budgetary, the argument is that it's purely budgetary, you can pass that with a simple majority, the 51 votes, as opposed to the super majority, 60 votes. So that's how the stimulus bill got passed. That's how um, Trump's tax cuts during his presidency were passed through budget reconciliation there's a lot of conversation about how there's some um, semantics basically about what's budgetary and what's not and how you decide if it can go through budget reconciliation. But right now that's basically the only way to pass legislation.
2: Yeah. And that's obviously not what, what you want, right? You don't want the country to be completely ground to a halt legislatively because of somebody in Rhode Island doesn't get their way. And so they throw a fit and, (laughs) and hold up the whole, legislative session right that's that's then I mean extreme minority you have one state or half of one state maybe in in the case because you know one senator holding up the progress and the the agenda for the 99 other senators involved
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah this is really interesting Zach I kind of thought that we were going to disagree a lot more I I expected you to make a case for the filibuster actually yeah what what did you think before you started researching for it
2: My thoughts were along party lines, for sure, um, that this is something that needed to be preserved and it's, you know, fundamental and blah, blah, blah. But as with everything, I try to be principled and consistent in terms of my beliefs. And for me, this is something that I didn't really have a ton of knowledge about going into the, the discussion, but the things that stood out to me were the senators using it as a tool to gain stuff that's beyond the scope of what actually was relevant to the bill the staffing for the agencies, right, for presidential appointments, that one seemed to be really kind of cheap to me. And I get it, right? Like I get if, if I'm going to take the purely political viewpoint on it, of course, you keep the filibuster. It's it's so useful to you. It's useful when you're in power. It's useful when you're out of power. It's useful in all these different ways because you can easily point the blame at the other party. You can deflect blame from yourself, right? There's a lot of convenient usefulness that that I think the filibuster gives you as a political tool, but I think, and I I would like to think that I'm somebody who is more of like an actual government purist, and I would like the government to function in the way that it was designed, not in a way that you're going off of technicalities and weird loopholes and stuff like that. So that's where I kind of come down on it where it's like, I, I would like to stick by the, by my guns and principles on this and say, I don't know enough to say that it should be gotten rid of entirely, but in terms of a political process, it doesn't serve the people. I would say it helps serve politicians and it helps them get reelected. And honestly, behind closed doors, the cynic in me says that probably none of these people actually want it gone because they find it useful. That's kind of where I came down. I was surprised myself, honestly, I was surprised Mm -hmm. that this is where I came down. But once I started reading, like, uh, I have a few things from reason.com, which is like the libertarian kind of magazine, online magazine. And it was just really kind of basic, like, hey, the founders didn't build this in. And it overwhelmingly protects the rights of the minority to an extent where it almost holds the rest of the country hostage. And that's not what the design of the country was made for. So to me, that's incongruent with my beliefs.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that something, one of the reasons I think maybe we both really agree on this is that this is just a democracy issue yeah. of how, does, how do we keep our democracy Working. And I think that, yeah, we obviously have a lot of overlap on that. And I agree, this is not something that was built into the Constitution. And it's not like the founders just had no concept of super majorities. Like you mentioned, there's super majorities that are required for certain specific things in the Constitution. And those were the things that they drew out as saying, like, no, this really needs like extra consensus. But that didn't apply to just ordinary legislation. Yep. So, yeah, and I do agree. It's been I think it's been a huge handicap for our country not being able to pass things that we should have been able to pass.
2: Yeah. And, and whether I agree or not with the gun control legislation posed after Sandy Hook or Obamacare or you know whatever else, that, that, that's almost irrelevant. Right. If we're going to talk on the principles of the filibuster itself. Whatever legislation was blocked or not blocked or whoever blocked it is almost relevant to the discussion because of the fact that we should be discussing whether it actually is a useful tool for us as a nation rather than, oh, well, they used it in this way and then they used it in this way four years later. And you can find so much he said, she said. And that's the other thing I didn't like about it was all the hypocrisy involved in it. Where
0: So much hypocrisy. I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you. I wrote hypocrisy in my notes probably three times oh, yeah. just because and you're right it's used both parties do this this is not a like democrat republican oh one side is being all noble about it kind of issue i mean this is this is pure just party politics
2: yeah and and each side loves to just get up there and grandstand and say oh well the republicans are using this as uh you know a tool to keep the people oppressed and and then the republicans get up there and do the same thing you know, six years later or whatever. And it's just, it's yucky to me. I don't think that in the time where our country is so divided or as divided as it is, that it makes sense to have another thing that people can just wedge in between us to say, these other guys are the ones that they're really bad. You know, Mm -hmm. don't don't trust them. They want to do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, come on, we don't need any more of that. If that's, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we have enough as it is. Like, let's not use some accidental rule from 1806 to divide the country even further. Like that doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I'm not elected. So what do I know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> not elected by choice. <laughs> yeah, not, right. not, a, not a career I would choose for myself, right, I don't think.
2: <laughs> right. I just, I found the same thing that you said, Aaron, earlier about the supermajority, right? That literally from the, my recent, one of my recent.com articles I, I was referencing was they said, had they, the framers, wanted to require 60 votes to confirm judges, they knew how to do it, like they did it for other things. So they knew what they were doing, at least to a certain degree when they made the systems and they deliberately chose not to require two thirds for for legislation. So so I surprised myself. And I I think it's maybe time somebody that's less partisan takes a look at the Senate rules and tries to (laughs) reform some things in there.
0: Oh, man, I totally agree. And this is where things get difficult, because the only people who can change it are the Senate. The only ones are the ones on the inside. So we do need some people in the Senate to just step up and do it. I don't, you know, I like I said, I kind of I really wish Joe Manchin would, but he's stuck on a ideological hill and doesn't seem like he's going to jump off of it.
2: We probably discussed a lot of what we wanted to discuss about. But I just wanted to mention about Joe Manchin real quick, because I think he's Wisconsin. Right? He's Wisconsin. Is, Virginia. is he Let's Virginia? Check. Because a lot of the the reasons why you have you would say, Well, gosh, this guy, this poor guy, I don't know, he's probably not poor, he's quite rich to heck. This guy has got the other, you know, half the Senate bearing down on him one way to say, No, no, you gotta change, or you know, you're not gonna get as much campaign dollars next next go around, or then you had the other half being like, No, Joe Manchin's a real across the aisle guy. He's a real stalwart of democracy. And so you have all this discussion. But probably a lot of it just depends on what kind of district he is in, right? Is he like? Yes.
0: So he's, yeah, he's West Virginia. Oh, West Virginia. And this is, I mean, he's an interesting politician. The New York Times did in the Daily, they did sort of a little profile on him that's pretty good. But I mean, one of the reasons why he's part of gun control legislation is because he's a gun rights advocate, you know, Mm -hmm. in the Democratic Party. So he's got some of these he, he's very centrist in some ways. In some ways, he just has different interests on, on different issues. But yeah, he, he lives in an interesting community. And I think because of that, yeah, he, he sits in this middle space um, and you're right. He very much is getting pressure on both sides. I mean, I know that McConnell has had pressure on him as yeah. well to to say, oh, don't you want bipartisanship? And also, that's been a, a thing against Joe Biden. <laughs> like, you ran on bipartisanship. How on earth can you talk about getting rid of the filibuster? Right. Is, is an idea out there right now, too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I, I didn't look because I didn't know we were going to go You know, talk about Manchin. But um, I'd be curious to see what his... What West Virginia did in the last election in terms of, is it a a D plus one state? Is it a, a, you know, an R plus one state, right? Because he's, his self-interest is to get reelected. And so for him, he probably can't afford to be too, too red or too blue, because then that very thin margin that he's hanging on by probably disappears, you know, when he's up for reelection. So.
0: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Which is, which is kind of, which is kind of great, right? I mean, if we're just going to look at it from a uh, overall perspective right that you you don't have the the rest of the party dictating what his stances on opinions are just because it's politically convenient for them right you have he's he is in that sense beholden to the voters of his state to vote how the way they want him to vote
0: yeah i don't know i'm not sure what the what the population mix of west virginia is yeah and how how they would push on this issue but then even that is is frustrating because then it means West Virginia basically matters in the rest of the country, or a lot of the rest of the country. So,
2: that's true. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting way to look at it. But I just looked up the the results for West Virginia twenty twenty. Basically, the state went two thirds for Republican five hundred forty five thousand votes for for Trump and two hundred thirty five for Biden ten thousand for Libertarians. So basically, it went you know almost two to one uh, Republican. So for them, for Mansion to be a Democrat Senator elected in a, you know, pretty heavy state that went for Trump in 2020, that kind of explains a lot to me as to why he's holding out maybe on some of these things because it's just change a few votes for him and and he's probably out of their next election cycle.
0: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, to me, I'd say like, whether he gets voted out or not, he should just vote on this. This is a democracy protecting thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe put your self-interest aside a little bit, but, you know, maybe just being a good representative, I think you can debate how that works, but.
2: Yeah, I'm not saying he's doing anything, you know, good or bad, but just trying to maybe speculate a little bit as to.
0: Mm. His motivations. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we had, again, lots of overlap once we once we looked into this really interesting. Um, and I'm gl- I'm actually really glad about that. I think this is just something where we want Congress to be able to work more efficiently, to work better and be able to represent the people better. So
2: I didn't know either you know, this is another one we hadn't really talked about at all before, but I was once I knew, was surprised myself, I kind of thought we might be a little bit more mm-hmm. agreeable on this topic yeah, our motivations are, are, I think in the same lines of, you know, wanting the rules to work in a way that is beneficial and not necessarily convenient for people, but in a way that the rules are fair and they work and you're not getting all this scummy trickery kind of stuff. It just feels, even though it is, you know, allowed, it just kind of feels a bit yucky. So
0: mm-hmm.
2: well, cool. Anything else that we, we need to add or any, any way in from, from Cassie, she's been pretty quiet today. So
0: That means we're either explaining things really
1: well or really poorly.
2: Or we lost our hours ago. Right. So. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: No, you guys, I feel like I learned a lot. I definitely did think of all the people that praise those who are standing on their feet for 24 hours speaking and thought that that's kind of all it was about. And, um, and had seen it a little bit in the news and didn't know why and, I kind of agree with both of you and feeling like there are a lot of things in our system that I would feel good if we changed the rules on. And um, I know that this isn't something that was originally in the Constitution or thought of about by the reformers, but they did think about other aspects of our government. And just like you said, they they felt like they kind of had it handled in other ways. So it's definitely interesting to think about life with or without it since we have lived without it. Already, yeah, really interesting stuff. Cool.
2: Thanks, well, Cass. thanks. Yeah. Well, then that's probably just gonna about do it for us today. I don't know. We'll catch you guys next week. Topic will be forthcoming. We don't know what we're going to talk about yet, but uh, we're glad you joined us today, and hope you enjoyed the episode and learned a little bit. We certainly had fun. I did at least.
0: Oh yeah, always fun here on the Reframers. We'll yeah. see you next time.
2: Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode.
0: You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Pod, And you can email us at
1: reframerspod at gmail.com.